You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome to episode 80 of Distilling Theology. I'm your co-host, Blake Courtright, joined, as always, by my 1689 Federalist co-host, Justin Van Riper, the big bad Baptist bear. How's it going, buddy? Listen, my long-locked Presbyterian baby-sprinkling friend, I have been wonderful. I have been busy. It's been quite a summer so far, uh, but I am, I am, I'm good. I am excited for this, this episode. I am excited for this drink. Uh, boy, it is just an exciting evening. And Blake, we are not alone tonight, are we? We are not. We are gratefully joined by somebody uh, more qualified than us to speak on the topic tonight. Uh, but not just anybody. We are joined by a, uh, a returning guest tonight. We have the pleasure of spending time with Dr. Kim Riddlebarger, the author of A Case for Amillennialism and uh, owner of the Riddle Blog, as well as a longtime co-host of the White Horse Inn and a pastor who just retired after many years of serving the church uh, this past year. So, Dr. Riddlebarger, it is great to have you back. Thanks for spending some time with us tonight. Sure. Good to be back. Good to be on with you guys. Wonderful. And last time we were on uh, with you, we were tasting Redbreast Irish whiskey, but I believe you said that you were a big fan of the distillery that we're sipping tonight, the Bilveni. Is that correct? Well, I'm a, I have a, a nice bottle that I like to sip. Very good. Very I'm, good. I'm, a, I'm a fan of lagers and, and Pilsner, so I can't say I'm a fan of whiskey, but yeah, Balvini is my favorite of all of those. Yes, this is the way. Say. Someone else has Belvini as their favorite. Uh, I don't know, Justin, if you want to give us a little little blurb there from the notes. Yeah. No, Belvini is, uh, is by far and away my favorite distillery. Uh, I am a big fan ever since my very first sip, my very first dram of Belvini 12 double wood. I was just uh, in love. And ever since then, um, I've had other, I've had other whiskeys, other scotches that I, I think maybe perhaps um, for the moment actually were better, objectively better. And yet this, they, they have not overtaken my favorite position. Um, it's almost like when you, when you take a drink and you feel like you're at home, it's just, you know, it's, it's how it is for me. Um, but anyway, this was provided to us by a listener. Uh, we have uh, Belveni single barrel, 15 year sherry cask, uh, sent to us by our good friend, Michael Durham. Thank you, Mike. You are the bomb. Sure um, I am super excited. He sent us quite a few samples in, in this immediately. I was like, Blake, we need to sip this because I am overjoyed. Um, it is bottled at 47.8% ABV, uh, aged at least 15 years exclusively in single European oak sherry butt. And each cask will yield only 800 bottles of Scotch whiskey. So Blake, what are you getting on the nose? My friend. Well, unsurprisingly, for a whiskey that spent 15 years in sherry casks, um, there's a lot of those traditional sherry notes. I'm getting those, um, mm-hmm. getting that like dark cherry, 
little bit of those uh, raisins and stone fruit. Um, I mean, it's just a it's just a dark fruit basket, but there's also some baking spices. Yeah, a bit of co- I'm almost getting like cake and icing, some syrupy yeah. fruits. It's a very sweet drink. Oh yeah, even even some even some maybe nutmeg and, and nuts. Okay, I could see that. I've got allergies so bad I can't smell the <laughs> nutmeg, but I can tell you it doesn't smell like cutty sark. <laughs> that much I know. Um, I I must get a little bit of pecans in there as well. Maybe Even that's plums, some plums. Yeah, it's just very. Really it's a very good. Yeah, it's a very plum complex. Skins. Yeah, yeah, plum it's skins. <laughs> it's it's definitely a very complex uh, on the nose, but very cohesive. Oh yeah. Um, it definitely goes well together with itself <laughs> as I, far as what the scents are, but you could say, uh, never mind. I was going to make a joke about appropriations par, uh, Adonis Vidu a couple of weeks ago, talking about how, how we, we discern for one moment, a little bit more of this note and a little bit more of this note, uh, at any given moment, but really it's all the whiskey and it's not as though there's actually these different flavors. It's all one cohesive, uh, unit just as God is one singular being, but uh, in different redemptive acts, we can perceive the appropriations of, of one person of the Trinity uh, to a certain act more than the other. But that doesn't negate inseparable operation. Blake, Anyways, Blake, let's drink this. Taste. Sorry, I just, you know, I, the mind is a terrible thing. All right. Cheers, gentlemen. Mm. Oh, man, this hits home. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is top. This is top shelf stuff right here. It's silky smooth, man. It's a very, yeah, it's a very mature sherry uh, scotch. It's almost like a, like a fruitcake with uh, a little bit of nuttiness. It's almost, it's almost rum-like in its bitterness as it kind of sits. I, I don't know if it's maybe, I don't know. It, it's not even the texture, but it, it's just very, very delicious. Yeah, it's su- super gentle. Um, the finish is really long and warming, which I'm yeah. kind of surprised by. A little, little, little cocoa. Yeah, it gets really. It's funny because it gets kind of, I noticed it got a little bit dry towards the back of the mouth. And then as the finish lingers, there's that lingering sweetness, that cocoa, um, some more of that stone fruit comes back. A little bit and, of orange peel. Yeah. And it's pretty mouthwatering. Oh yeah. This is fantastic. Thank, thank you, you so much, Michael. Michael. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Mm. Man, I'm going to be very satisfied. For, wow. Yeah. That's just like. This drink, Blake, you could say is sufficient. Oh, wow. You, you stole my transition there. <laughs> Speaking of sufficiency, Blake, uh, guys, if you want to join us uh, to open with prayer, uh, if you have the value of vision, turn to page 282, God all sufficient. Pray with us. O Lord of grace, the world is before me this day, and I am weak and fearful. But I look to thee for strength. If I venture forth alone, I stumble and fall. But on the Beloved's arms, I am firm as the eternal hills. If left to the treachery of my heart, I shall name thy name, or I shall shame thy name. But if enlightened, guided, upheld by the Spirit, I shall bring thee glory. Be thou my arm to support, my strength to stand, my light to see, my feet to run, my shield to protect, my sword to repel, my sun to warm. To enrich me will not diminish thy fullness. All thy loving kindness is in thy Son. I bring him to thee in the arms of faith. I urge his saving name. 
as the one who died for me. I plead his blood to pay my debt of wrong. Accept his worthiness for my unworthiness, his sinlessness for my transgressions, his purity for my uncleanness, his sincerity for my guile, his truth for my deceits, his meekness for my pride, his constancy for my backslidings, his love for my enmity, his fullness for my emptiness, his faithfulness for my treachery, his obedience for my lawlessness, his glory for my shame, his devotedness for my waywardness, his holy life for my unchaste ways, his righteousness for my dead works, his death for my life. Amen. Amen. Good stuff. Good stuff. Mm. Mm. Every time, man, I open it up and I just get uh, convicted about also my own prayer life that I'm often, so often praying, God, I want this and I need help with it. You know, it's easy to fall into that kind of um, uh, almost transactional kind of prayer. Mm -hmm. And then I read the Puritans and I read even further back, the things they're drawing from in the Psalms and Paul's prayers in his letters. And I just, <laughs> I'm humbled and, oh, yeah. and brought back into the community of the saints. Um, and speaking of being in the community of the saints tonight, we are talking <laughs> about covenant pedo baptism. This is, that's right, folks, a family friendly episode. Listen, uh, boy, <laughs> fun, you know, water park fun for the whole family as it were. Uh, but that said, um, yeah, last week we talked about creative baptism specifically from a 1689 perspective and, and celebrated in many ways um, the similarities in our confessions mm-hmm. as far as what we're saying about baptism and that the differences in who's to be baptized, how much water is to be used, and then ultimately the covenant theology underneath that are substantive differences, Yes, but not ones that should break fellowship to the point where we can't recognize each other as brothers and sisters in, in the Lord. And Amen. And also that you guys, in some ways, are closer to Presbyterian covenant theology than a dispensational uh, evangelical Baptist might be, or mm-hmm. uh, or than we might be to a Lutheran, depending on who you're talking to. So, yes, uh, it's it's an interesting discussion uh, within 1689 and Westminster Federalism, which is what we're specifically focused on in these two episodes. And for those of you that are new to the show, go back and check out episodes 39 and 40 if you want to deep dive specifically on the Westminster and the 1689's covenant theology, which is the biblical theology, the hermeneutical lens through which we understand redemptive history. But coming into this, we'll, we'll touch on it a little bit. Uh, Dr. Riddlebarger, just as we jump in here, what is covenant pedo-baptism from a, a, a Presbyterian perspective, and how does that differ from, say, the Lutheran or the Catholic views uh, who are also baptizing their children? Well, I've noticed as a convert from mainstream evangelical Baptist theology to the Reformed infant baptism view, the covenantal Reformed view, um, we're up against a whole tide of other church groups and denominations, you've named a couple, who baptize infants for entirely different reasons than the Reformed do. So when you say you believe in infant baptism, 95% of people that I talk to in the mainstream evangelical world are thinking, oh, you must be a closet Roman Catholic or else a Protestant liberal doesn't take the authority of Scripture very seriously. Um, So part of it is we're up against a a whole lot of, of misconceptions that people have. Simply put, we baptize the children believers as a sign and seal of the promises God makes to believers and their children in the covenant of grace. It's a real simple view. 
Uh, our Lutheran friends who had a lot of interaction on Whitersin for years and years with Lutheran guys, they take the view that since the word says the child goes through the bath of regeneration, that sins are forgiven, that the act of baptism regenerates because the word says so. So their view is in some ways, you know, would fit under the heading of the five solas, Protestant Reformation solas, but really is different than the traditional reform position. Rome, on the other hand, with its priestly sacramental system, its sacerdotal system, will argue that baptism remits the guilt of original sin, and they'll even call it first justification. And that begins the lifelong process of grace being infused in little Johnny. Over time, little Johnny then uh, is transformed from sinner into hopefully saint, and will begin to produce the kind of good works after confirmation and and uh, First communion and begin to produce the kind of good works actually merit uh, reward. So it's an entirely different system. Then you've got you know the mainstream Protestants, the, the mainline Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Episcopalians who also baptize. Often speaking of it as christening, you know none of that is is part of the the reform uh, federal views you were calling it. Um, and so we're up against that, that kind of misconception, especially when you mentioned to evangelicals. I've not had a lot of discussions with 16 a.m. Baptists, but I've had hours of discussion with mainstream evangelicals. And it's just, it's a, it's a terminological problem. You spend almost all your time on definition. Um, and, and it, I think, has been a real good uh, discussion for me over the years because it helps me think through you know, the struggles that I had coming to the reformed view and it gets me right it gets me right back to the, the bigger question which is look we read the bible fundamentally differently than mainstream evangelicals and it really is a hermeneutics question at its heart so the reformed view of infant baptism i can't believe made perfect sense once you embrace a broader covenant theology and apart from that framework it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense so sometimes you have to back up and say let's talk about first principles here before actually start trading verses about baptism yeah no, I, I would agree with you. Uh, most of the conversations I've had with people about baptism, I have to. We have to backtrack and, and say, yep. okay, well, yep. first we need to talk about what you believe about covenant theology, because if they don't have a covenant framework to work from, whether you be uh, Westminster or 1689, um, don't for, don't forget the three forms now. Oh yeah, and our well, Dutch boys. <laughs> yep, never forget our Dutch boys. Um, <laughs> uh, Without that framework to work from, yeah, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, yeah. And in the same way, I don't it, think I don't think credo baptism makes a lot of sense if you don't have proper covenant theology. If we're honest, um, other than well, it's commanded, and that's about it. That's kind of where you end without covenant theology. Well, when I was a Baptist, the foil for me were Roman Catholics who baptized babies, and Church of Christ Campbellites who believed that unless you were baptized by them in their church, you were lost, mm. and who were essentially, you know, the the Restoration view is essentially finny with uh, a Baptist view of, of baptism. And, you know, in that case, baptism becomes a work. And so I think yeah. most evangelicals have, have run into Roman Catholics. They've run into Campbellites, you know, Church of Christ and the Christian church folk. And so they're reacting at something that nobody in historic Protestant circles actually believes. Right. So <laughs> we'll do that question then. You've alluded to that journey a little bit, and, and you mentioned it. Um, back when we had you on to talk about amillennialism shifting from a dispensationalist view into a reformed view and shifting from premillennial premillennial to amillennial so tell us a little bit about that journey from 
uh, evangelical Baptist to Reformed Pitabaptist, because that's an interesting transition. Uh, I remember for episode 40, Todd Pruitt kind of had a similar, went from being a Southern Baptist preacher to being a PCA-ordained Presbyterian minister. So um, I'd be curious to hear, what did that look like for you? Particularly, what were the objections? What were the things in your own system or, or mind that were roadblocks on that journey? And then what were the arguments or hermeneutics uh, or specific verses, if there were anything like that, um, which finally brought you around to your current persuasion? Okay. Okay. I grew up in a household where my grandparents on my dad's side were Grace Brethren. And that church traces its back to the German Baptist Brethren called Dunkers. So that tells you a whole lot about <laughs> what kind of categories <laughs> I had inherited. Um, and, and so, and so I grew up in a household where it was a scandal when my grandparents left the Brethren Church and joined the Southern Baptist Church and were rebaptized. That was just like a big deal. So, I thought when I when I came to faith after I was of course raised in a Christian home and believed as a youth, but uh, when I came back to a serious commitment to Christ after high school, first year of college or so. Um, I, of course, began attending the mainstream evangelical churches, and I thought at the time that if somebody had told me that by the time I retire, I would believe in infant baptism and deny the rapture, um, I probably would have taken my life then to prevent apostasy later. I, I was really <laughs> serious about it, and um, I knew I needed to be baptized. Uh, I had been born in a Catholic hospital, so I was baptized Roman Catholic. I recall my dad having a fit that Catholics, you know, go through and baptize all the babies in the, in the hospital, regardless of their their identification of Catholic Church. And I knew I needed to be baptized, so I joined the throng of the Jesus people down at the beach at Corona del Mar, with all the yachts going in out of Newport Harbor, uh, with, for the giant Calvary Chapel crowd. And I was baptized by I think it was Chuck Smith, Chuck Smith Jr., the son. There were thousands of people being baptized in the ocean, and as much as I disagree with Calvary Chapel theology, that really was an amazing testimony to all those uh, billion-dollar folks on their yachts sailing by to watch, you know, hundreds of people being baptized. It was it was pretty remarkable. It was a great yeah. day. Yeah. And so I was baptized. If you ask me for my baptismal certificate, you know, good luck. Calvary Chapel didn't give a rat's patootie about any of that stuff. So, <laughs> so the Lord knows, and I, I was baptized intentionally as a Baptist. Um, as I mentioned prior, I became Reformed starting with the five points. And that was pretty easy. I mean, the biblical proof texts are really pretty strong. The journey to Amil was much harder because I was born and bred a dispensationalist. And the last thing to go after I embraced covenant theology was, was baptism. And I finally decided um, that, yeah, I, I was going to embrace pedo-baptism. One of the things that was really instrumental along the way was Dr. Bob Strimple, who was a systematic theology prophet at Westminster back in the day when I had him. He had been a Baptist student under John Murray. So he had driven Dr. Murray nuts as I was driving him nuts with my, my questions and just disagreement with it. And I remember Dr. Strimple asking me, he said, Kim, do you think the new covenant's a better covenant? Well, of course, scripture says so. If the old covenant included our children, how can the new covenant be a better covenant if it excludes our children? No Bible verses. It was kind of a, a, a think about that kind of question, thought experiment. But it really was like the, the you know, any tank missile that penetrates armor on one side and goes through and it lights a fire in the interior, you know, that it, once I was penetrated by that argument, it, I, it bothered me. I, I started wrestling with it. And, and 
think he's got a point and how am I going to address this? Because I don't want to become, you know, Pato Baptist. And uh, I got a hold of um, Jeffrey Bromley's book on uh, Children of Promise. He was an Anglican, but a, a pretty solid evangelical Anglican. And after reading his book, I was convinced. And I, you know, at that time, was ordained in the Reformed Episcopal Church, along with someone else you may know, good old uh, Dr. Horton. And we've since repented of that, but um, <laughs> that was that was it. It was it took a while, and um, to show you how far I've come uh, during my course of pastoral ministry, I've baptized probably several hundred covenant kids, and it's a joy and a delight to see kids come in as families, largely out of Calvary Chapel or the big evangelical Bible churches, and baptize kids anywhere from you know eight, nine down to infant. Watch them grow up under the preaching of the word, make professions of faith, then get married, and and toward the end of my my ministry at Christ Reform, I was absolutely baptizing the children of the kids I'd baptized when they first wow. had joined. And this last Lord's Day, I was privileged to baptize my grandson. So yeah, it, it's it has not so much an intellectual. Uh, I, I have to believe this uh, for me, but it it's become I think my fondest memory of my pastoral ministry is looking back and thinking of the promises God made and hearing those promises read over and over and over through the baptismal form. The Dutch aren't like Anglicans. Anglicans just baptize. The Dutch have to instruct. Every time you baptize, they have to go through the whole form and so no one in the congregation knows what it's about because they're worried about the errors that arise when you baptize via custom or superstition and don't think about it biblically. So I look back, guys, and I think after 25 years, that's one of my, the, the things I will miss most in the future is that interaction with the families in the church, entering through profession of faith, uh, baptizing believing adults, and then having them present their children for baptism. That was that was a joy and a delight. So um, it, it has a, uh, it's not been an intellectual uh, debate for me. It's just watching it pastoral practice. It's just been a blessing. Hmm. Great. Well, that leads us to some, uh, some objections then, um, which I'm sure you've wrestled with. Uh, over the years. So uh, obviously uh, there's the argument from silence, right? I'm sure you've heard the argument that there's there's no Bible verse explicitly which tells us uh, to baptize our children. Um, as a, as a uh, 1689 Credo Baptist, we would say that um, when you include all of uh, our belief system, not simply this argument here, but all of our beliefs that uh, practicing um, infant baptism would be a violation of the regulative principle of worship, um, because we're doing something that's not explicitly commanded to do uh, in Scripture. So what do you do with the argument that uh, from silence, the argument that there's no uh, specific example or verse that tells us or commands us to do um, infant baptism? Yeah, I would say Scripture is not silent. I would, I would, I would challenge the premise of the question. Mm-hmm. Um, given the close connection in the New Testament and its view of baptism as a fulfillment of circumcision. Uh, infant baptism is certainly implied just in the hermeneutic that Jewish writers of the New Testament would bring with them uh, to all the Messianic prophecies fulfilled in Christ. And then I think the other issue that flows out of that is not only is it implied, given the tie to circumcision, the apostles actually practiced it. Um, you've got Acts chapter 16 with Lydia, you know, presenting her household for baptism. You had the Philippian jailer after the earthquake and, you know, he says, wow, what is this? Uh, how, should I, how can I be saved? And Paul accepts his baptism on his profession of faith and his repentance. But he presents his household for baptism. Crispus, you know, in the next chapter does the same thing. 
So I think, you know, add to that Peter's command in Acts 2, 39, that believers are baptized, new converts are baptized upon profession of repentance. But the promise given them in baptism extends to their children in Acts 2, 39. And that promise there is couched and framed very clearly in language that is framed by the Abrahamic covenant. So I think the assumption that it's not taught, you know, just isn't, isn't true. I, I think it is taught. I think it's why I practice it, because I think it is taught. Mm-hmm. And I think the argument from silence really isn't so silent. I, I think I think a Jew who comes to, you know, understand Jesus as a Messiah, who understands what circumcision is, who's, say, been involved in the Judaism controversy where circumcision is made into a saving work, and Paul, you know, clobbers that and says, no, no, it's a sign of the covenant of promise. Um, you know, Abraham uh, isn't negated by the fact that Moses, you know, had the blessing first principle in the law. I think it's far from silent. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm sure, of course, you'd get the retort that, uh, well, just because they're household, there's no guarantee that there's children, infants in their household, et cetera. Yeah, but I'd throw back to you, look, a first century household isn't like a 2020 American census household with two believers mm-hmm. and, you know, two and a half children. <laughs> uh, a household a cat, yeah. Yeah, a household in the first century in the Greco-Roman world mm-hmm. includes grandma and grandpa and oftentimes the aunts and the uncles and oftentimes their kids and oftentimes, as given the Old Testament language of servants, mm-hmm. all the household people. A first mm-hmm. century household is a whole lot bigger. And I think the Baptist assumes the burden of proof to demonstrate that oikos excludes children. I think the normal use of oikos includes households and households are a whole lot bigger I think you assume the burden of proof of, of showing me that there are no children in any of these first century households. Now, the other question, the natural follow-up question then is, uh, what do you do with unbelieving members of the household? Unbelieving spouses, unbelieving servants, unbelieving grandparents, etc.? Yeah, that question actually is raised in 1 Corinthians seven fourteen because you've got the case there. Uh, Corinth is a really tough problem for Paul because you have a, you have a city that is filled with and new converts to Christianity, the synagogue isn't quite as vital in Corinth as it is in other places. So it's it's more Gentile than Jew. And so you have a lot of circumstances in that whole ethical section, 5, 6, and 7 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul's dealing with questions related to what happens when one party to a marriage becomes a Christian and the other doesn't. Mm-hmm. In this case, you don't have generational things. You've got first generation, new converts. And so his argument for screen seven four is look, children of a marriage, probably a mixed marriage there, the child is still holy. And by that, as you you know know, the word sanctify there doesn't necessarily always refer to the process of growing in grace and knowledge. It certainly does in some places, but the primary means to be set apart. So I think what Paul's addressing in first Corinthians seven fourteen is the fact that a child of a wed- a marriage between a believer, a new convert, and the spouse remains an unbeliever that child is in the covenant and therefore eligible for baptism or else the passage wouldn't make any sense so on the reform stage remember baptism is inclusion within the covenant it doesn't regenerate so i think it explains in many ways very helpfully uh, the challenge we get on perseverance where people will say look at all the falling away passages in the new testament look at the exhortations to make their calling and election sure they persevere to the end in faith that makes perfect sense if there's a covenant of grace and the covenant of grace is made up of believers and unbelievers just as israel was in the old testament so you can and do see people fall away from the covenant and therefore 
those in those households who are baptized will see people fall away. Um, I can just relate a, a personal anecdote, but I grew up in a, in a broadly evangelical culture where all of my uh, Sunday school friends and, and church acquaintances all went off and watched Thief in the Night 30 times and were scared to death and went forward <laughs> at an altar call and gave their heart to Jesus and fell away not long after. So apostasy, which I take not to be the loss of salvation, but you know, leaving the covenant of grace, I take that to be an equal problem for, for all Christians, of mm-hmm. whether you baptize infants or adults. That apostasy is a huge problem. Yeah. And I think it's significant that when a group like ISIS wants, to, or, or even the new atheists, who want to see people renounce Christ, they ask them to do what? To reject their baptism. I think it's pretty clear that the people outside our, our kind of in-house debates realize that baptism really does something. Mm-hmm. And it, it includes people in that covenant mm-hmm. so that the way they get out of that covenant is to renounce their baptism. Mm-hmm. You, can't put, you can't put a, a piece of skin back on in circumcision, but you can certainly renounce your baptism. So I, I think you've got a, a pretty good case and a good way to explain what happens to people who are baptized who, who sadly uh, fall away. It, it, look, it, it's pastoral reality. I mean, every mm-hmm. pastor in our hearing has people who show up at every meeting. They're all excited about Jesus. Uh, for all intents and purposes, they're, they're, they love the Lord. They show all kinds of fruit at first. And then two years later, what happened to so-and-so? Where'd they go? Oh, they're over here at this. They're trying that now. They, that's the person you're describing, the person who's in the covenant, but who doesn't stay in the covenant, who falls away from the covenant, not mm-hmm. from election or salvation or regeneration. Yeah. And, and again, I think this is why the covenant uh, discussion is so important because your, your argument makes perfect sense in a Presbyterian covenant theology um, with, with a, with a federal Baptist federalist covenant theology. It, it, it's inconsistent, which is why we have to have that discussion uh, when, before you get to a discussion of baptism. So uh, moving on, if, if pedo baptism is true, if infant baptism is true, why then, uh, would the command uh, always be tied to repentance first, repentance and faith, repent and be baptized? Um, obviously, we know infants don't repent. Infants sure. uh, can't uh, can't get there intellectually. Um, so, what do you do to reconcile uh, the fact that pedo, or that uh, baptism is always associated scripturally with repentance and faith? I would agree with you on the first part entirely. That adult converts are expected to. Embrace Christ, trust Christ, renounce their own righteousness, mm-hmm. repent of their sin, turn from their sin. But I think you left off the second part is when there are cases in the New Testament with households and someone is converted, the passage I alluded to earlier, and you've got three you know, cases in Acts chapter 16. Lydia is converted, she repents and believes, she presents her household. William Jailer repents, believes, he presents his household. Crispus repents and believes, he presents his household. And I think that fits very well with the way you would expect the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, notion of the covenant of grace in that the new covenant I take to be the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. That makes perfect sense that you would have uh, those who are converted just like in Israel um, and take the sign that's still the covenant. Um, and in this case, in the new covenant, the sign changes from a knife and a cutting ritual and the shedding of blood, circumcision, to a water ritual, which has strong antecedents in the Old Testament with Israel's deliverance. Well, we'll go back further, Noah's deliverance from the unbelieving world with water, 
Israel's passing through the Red Sea mm -hmm. uh, on dry ground, which is a, another problem, of, I think, for the Baptist position. I'll get into in a sec. And then the entrance of um, Israel into uh, the Promised Land by going through the Jordan on dry ground. Um, the water rituals include the entire nation, not just males. Circumcision, of course, is a male ritual. Um, and, and you gotta admit, I, this is clear to everybody, baptism is a lot better sign than circumcision. As evidence, what happens when Israel Amen. enters enters into Gilgal <laughs> and they have to camp for a week because nobody can walk. Um, the men are all circumcised and nobody's going anywhere after that for a while. Um, Terrible time for an ambush. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I take the view that, um, yes, when there is an adult convert, they must repent and believe. I have been privileged to baptize a number of believing adults. Uh, sometimes they're single, sometimes they're married. But when you uh, accept a household, uh, you on the profession of faith and the, baptism, and, the, and the repentance of the head of household, only upon that condition can children then be presented for baptism. So we don't christen, we don't sprinkle water on the congregation, you know, we don't do any of that kind of stuff. It requires a profession of faith. And then anybody who's in that household and under that person's covenant headship then is a suitable candidate for baptism. How do you distinguish between because I grew up in a, in a Wesleyan church. Uh, we obviously did not do infant baptism as Wesleyans, um, but we did baby dedications. Now, how do you distinguish between baby dedications and actual infant baptism? Well, for one, the sign of the covenant applied in, in infant baptism, and mm -hmm. it isn't in, in baby dedication. I, I recall on my last Sundays in the Evangelical Church side that I grew up in, my, I was married and my wife and I attended he loved our pastor, a great guy, um, big Spurgeon fan, um, decent guy. And when I was going through this question, I went to him and said, Pastor, I've got a, I've got a problem. I'm starting to think this way. And he said, well, you know, infant baptism is taught in the Bible. Okay. So then the next Sunday, they had an infant dedication. And I looked at him with a wry smile and said, Pastor, where is infant dedication taught anywhere in the Bible? <laughs> And he kind of he kind of gave me the I don't want to talk about it look. Um, I think that's a real issue that you know, yeah. the sign and seal is circumcision in the old covenant. It is baptism in the new. It's not some made up ceremony that we call baby dedication. Mm -hmm. But I think I think the desire for evangelical Baptistic Christians to present their children to do something in church reflects the idea that there's just something about being a, a Christian that reminds us that our kids are part of God's redemptive work and that they're not, granted, they're fallen. They're, as my friend Danny Hyde says, they're vipers and diapers, but they're not pagan children. You know, yeah, they're, 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 they're in a Christian household, they're in the covenant. And so why not mark them with the sign and seal of the covenant, I think would be the route I would take to that. Yeah. Well, God bless your consistency. Amen. I said something similar to Eric last week when we were chatting. Um, but that, so we talked about, you've already said we, in the Reformed Pedobaptist view, we reject baptismal regeneration. Um, could you elaborate on why we reject that and why we don't hold, uh, you know, in, in contradistinction to you know, the, the Roman Catholic view or even the Lutheran view to some extent? Well, the Lutherans, again, as much as I disagree with baptismal regeneration, are also consistent because they say the word says so, that's it. 
um, there's there's kind of a biblicism there that on the one hand one respect, on the other hand it misses a whole bunch of uh, nuances. Um, we can get into the the larger discussion, but simply put, with the Lutherans, law gospels their hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. On the the covenantal reform side, law gospels is a subset of our covenant works, covenant grace. So we're able to talk about baptism without reducing everything to law or to gospel, as they do. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Roman Catholics, of course, you know, that have embraced a whole sacerdotal system. Um, on the Reform side, we follow if circumcision is the model. Circumcision, you know, remember when Israel's in the wilderness. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, there are a whole lot of dead Israelites who were circumcised but who didn't believe the promise. And they're left behind in the wilderness because they grumbled and they weren't looking forward to that land of milk and honey like Joshua and Caleb who went in and, and you know, said, hey, look, the armies are huge. God can conquer them for us. So they're operating in faith. The others weren't. And so you don't take the view that when someone is circumcised, they are regenerate, or when someone is immersed in water, they're regenerate. That's, you know, what we say of the sign, we say of the thing signified. So I would tell my Lutheran friend, look, when Paul speaks of the bath of regeneration in Titus 3, 5, or when he speaks of 1 Peter 3, the uh, baptism, you know, thus saves us, um, that the sign um, God's promise to save is connected to the thing signified, the water. So, you know, you've got the idea that when the water's present by faith, you believe the thing signified is also present. Does the water bring about the thing signified? No. But in faith, because this is a promise, it's a, the promise that God makes to his covenant people, I embrace it in faith, and I believe that where the water's been present, the reality is also present. Now, God forbid, if little Johnny's baptized and grows up and is an unbeliever, I have the example of Israel in the Old Testament, where there are a whole lot of Jews lying dead in the, in the Sinai Peninsula because they didn't believe the promise. Um, conversely, I think it's also important to say that in the Reformed camp, there's a, a division of sorts between those who embrace uh, infant baptism on the basis of the covenant promise, which is the predominant view, and then the Kuyperians. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abraham Kuyper held to a view that children are presented upon the presumption of their regeneration. And I think that raises a whole lot of pastoral problems down the road. I think that's a, an improper view. And there is that spat within our tradition. So just just kind of heads up that, that you know, we're not of one, one mind on that. that. Sure. Well, and that, for me, coming through this and, and coming to uh, embrace a Reformed pedobaptist view, I also wrestled with sola fide, where we aren't saved by, you know, we talked about regeneration but we aren't like saved or, or identified with Christ on the basis of our parents, but by faith alone. So, and, and we've kind of touched on this a bit, but why, why then is that sign given? Cause I, I think for me, that was a, that was a sticking point of, of, well, I say sola fide, but then I'm talking about people being, people being in the covenant who aren't uh, regenerate. And the potential of some people who may never be reject, you know, who who may be apo- true yeah. apostates. Um, so I guess that, that uh, you already answered the the original way that question was framed. So I'm sp- spinning it into a second question of how do we uh, deal with that language? I guess I think that's something the the 1689 Baptists would probably throw back at us about covenant theology, where they would say the new covenant is only a regenerate covenant, and we shouldn't be giving it to anyone who we 
who we don't have a good reason to believe is regenerate. So how do we on the, the Dutch and Presbyterian side respond to that, I guess? It's poorly yeah, framed question, but you know what I'm getting at. I, I know what you're getting at. And I think I've raised B.B. Warfield's uh, objection to uh, those who say that upon profession of faith, you baptize to ensure that those who baptize believe and repent. Uh, again, the apostasy of those who you presume to make a genuine profession of faith and you presume to repent and who later fall away is as much a problem for Baptists as it is for paedo-Baptists. Apostasy is a genuine problem in the Christian faith. It's a gigantic pastoral problem. Every church has to deal with this. You you watch this guy. He He's converted from unbelief. He's been to Calvary Chapel. He makes this great profession of faith. He's baptized as an adult upon his faith and repentance. What when it happens when that guy falls away? And they can and they do. If you've been in church for 25 years, you sadly watch it happen. Yeah. So I, I don't think the, the objection should frame the way we uh, look at baptism in the first place. I don't think we have any expectation on the, on the paedo-baptistic side that every member of our church is of the elect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We we have wheat and tares. We have um, those who are going to follow false doctrine and fall away. We're warned about this over and over and over again to make our calling election sure. There are unbelievers in the, in the in the church. There are also unbelievers outside the church, and you know you've got Melchizedek and others. Cases like the the Gibeonites and others. And when Jonah preached in Nineveh, there there are instances like that. In a if it were not for the if if the world had not fallen that those circles be concentric, but because the world is fallen, they're unbelievers outside the covenant. They miss out on all the benefits and blessings of being in the covenant. A, a good case, a, a common case would be, say, Roman Catholics. I'm sure we all know Roman Catholics who, at the end of the day, jettison everything the priest told them on Sunday, and who, when their heads to the pillow, are saying, thank you, God, Jesus died for my sins. We're going to see some of those folks in heaven. Are they outside the covenant? Yeah. And then on the other hand, there are going to be lots of elders with big Bibles, you know, who are closet unbelievers. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's just the reality of, of the nature of the covenant. It's visible. And the, the issue has been a thorn in our flesh enough. Louis Burkhoff has a whole chapter, you know, the dual aspect of the covenant is famous systematic theology, where, look, there are people in the covenant externally who profess faith, they look like Christians, but they only have historical faith or temporal faith. They can and they do fall away. And then there are people who, you know, struggle with sin. There's the the person who, you know, will come to you, Pastor, I've got this sin, I can't stop it, therefore I must not be a Christian. My response has always been, if you have a sin you can't stop, you're showing me you are a Christian because you're worried about the non-Christian feels guilty, but never has that intense struggle with sin. That's a sign that God's convicting you and sanctifying you. So um, I, I don't think that the objection that you, know, you baptize somebody and they fall away should turn or overturn the larger theological concept that that's never really been an expectation of the church in the first place. It would be purely of the elect. Yeah. So very, very common argument, especially on the Reformed Internet, of course, uh, is the argument of pedo communion. Um, why is that something that you would reject um, as opposed because to, I would ahead. reject pedo communion because I think it's superstitious nonsense. <laughs> I elaborate. Uh, okay, when I was in the Reformed Episcopal Church, one of the bishops decided, "Oh, we're going to embrace pedo communion," and I watched 
him shoot an eyedropper of wine into a baby's mouth and the baby spit it out all over the place. All I had to do was see that to realize, no, 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 no. Um, I, I would eventually press him to consider the fact that, look, in the Reformed tradition, we have a genus, sacrament. There are certain things common to sacraments. There are visible signs and seals given by God of the promises, the invisible promises made in Scripture, right? That's a sacrament. So all sacraments have that in common. That's the genus. But they're species. So, for example, all mammals you know, are, are warm-blooded. They're slide young, uh, body hair. But horses have four legs and humans have two. They're different species. So in this case, there are two species of sacraments. There's a sacrament of entrance into the covenant, baptism, and it requires the, the parents to profess their faith in Christ and believe the, the covenant promise and present their child for baptism. And then there's the Lord's Supper, which requires the discernment of the body of Christ. And so you have genus, the same, things in common, which make them sacraments and not ordinances on the evangelical side of things. At the same time, there are two species of sacrament, and they have different qualifications for participation. And it's just a matter of making that distinction. Once that's made, the notion of paid communion just goes away. And like I say, when I saw it being done, um, as a, any any interest in the topic from then, it was over. <laughs> you know? No, that's that's great. Um, I found myself even as a as a as a Baptist often arguing against uh, my brothers and sisters who who would argue for pedo communion in defense of my Presbyterian brothers and sisters because uh, I of course don't want uh, you guys to be misrepresented in any way either so no and yeah. Justin you got to remember internet theologians are not bound to reform confessions nor are they this they educate in seminary and they find a new hobby horse and <laughs> they jump they jump to conclusions. I mean, one of the worst problems with the internet, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a techie, I'm not a Luddite, I mean, I love the internet, I like doing stuff like this, it's, this makes it possible to talk to brothers in New York, you know, it's just great. But on the other hand, anybody who can read or can write a little bit uh, uh, convincingly becomes an internet theologian mm -hmm. and begins to teach all kinds of stuff that the Reformed churches have never embraced. That's it, that's it. And I, yeah. I don't pay any attention to them because none of our churches embrace them. We think it's goofy. Yeah. yeah. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's part of why on this show we've been very blessed to have people on who are seminarians, who are pastor. A few weeks ago, my pastor was on to speak about the Lord's Supper, and that's what he wrote his doctoral work on. So yeah. we're trying to find yeah. people that have studied these things and have, have steeped in them and, and marinated in them. And, and also just saying, hey, guys— you know, go read Calvin, go read Owen, go read Nehemiah, like go read people that are smarter than we are. We're just, we're just here for a conversation. So, uh, yeah, no, that was, that was wonderful. Um, no, Justin's chomping at the bit here for the, the covenant theology objection. So now we're, now we're shifting kind of zooming out back to the, the hermeneutical lens a little more and, and away from, uh, the, the nitty gritty, uh, of baptism itself. So Justin, no, this is great. I, I'm really enjoying, I, I love a good robust conversation, something with, uh, that can challenge you and really make you think and, and consider your perspective, consider, you know, we should all be humble enough to recognize we could be wrong on some of these issues. And, uh, and it's good to be challenged and to, uh, confirm why we believe what we believe. So this is great. Um, uh, so as a, as a, as a, as you know, there's several flavors of, of Baptist, even uh, within the Reformed Baptist uh, circles. Um, and so uh, 
But I, I think to be a consistent 1689 Federalist, a, a consistent particular Baptist, um, we would argue that Abraham was actually the federal head of the Abrahamic covenant and that Christ is the federal head of the new covenant. And instead of looking to our parents, for example, uh, for membership in the covenant of grace, uh, that we should be looking to the federal head, that being Christ. Um, and so the children were not circumcised. First of all, the command to, to circumcise your children was only given to Abraham, not of all of Israel, but to Abraham and his descendants. And so um, that if that's the case, um, uh, if children are, ba- are circumcised, not because of who their parents are, but because of who the covenant head is, federal head is, um, then then what business do Presbyterians have um, replacing uh, circumcision with baptism and baptizing children? Well, I, I would press you to go back to the, the paradigm you start with, that Christ is the federal head of the new covenant. Mm-hmm. And I would grant you he's the federal head in light of Paul's distinction between the two Adams in, in Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21 there. But at the same time, Paul speaks of Christ as the federal head of two categories, those in Adam, those in Christ. He makes the point in Romans chapter 4 about circumcision. And in Galatians 2 and uh, Galatians 3 and 4, he speaks of uh, the promise that God made to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ, and that includes the promise of the Holy Spirit, and the Gentiles participate in the Abrahamic promise by faith. So I think you've got a problem breaking the distinction or drawing the line of distinction between the old covenant, uh, the old covenant of promise, as you what you call it, the Abrahamic uh, Abrahamic covenant that mm-hmm. Abraham's the federal head, and Christ is a federal head of an entirely new and different covenant. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a child of promise. I'm received the Holy Spirit. And how does that make any sense if that's the case? Because you know Paul's really adamant about the fact that look the, the mess the circumstance the, the uh, agitators, the Judaizers that made in Galatia comes about because they've said that you lay Moses on top of Abraham and you turn a sign and seal of grace into a, a work. And his refutation of that is to say, look, um, the Abrahamic covenant remains in force in Galatia today. And so if the Abraham covenant remains in force, then your guys' misreading of Abram through your Moses glasses, you know, doesn't work. But I, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, you still in the new covenant, refer to Christians as children of Abraham. So I think that's a big point. I'd also press you a bit to look at Jesus's attitude toward children. Mm-hmm. In Luke 18, you know, they were bringing infants to Jesus. I know the Spurgeon quote, they're bringing children to Jesus, not to a font. I get that. Mm-hmm. But the bigger, the bigger point there is Jesus refers to infants as members of his kingdom. Well, as you know, on the reform side, given our, you know, Vossian, Finian, uh, redemptive historical understanding of, of scripture, there's a real close relationship throughout the Old Testament into the new between God's kingdom and God's covenant. The historical manifestation of the kingdom are the covenant works and covenant grace. Mm-hmm. And so if Jesus speaks of, of infants, ice, little guys, toddlers as members of the kingdom, and the kingdom's related covenant, then how on earth can you deny from those kingdom members assign and seal the covenant, which is baptism. It makes perfect sense to a Jew that what was promised to Abraham, Jesus is reaffirming there. Um, so I'd, I'd pressure on those points. And, and uh, what about Luke 22 with Jesus instituting the supper saying, look, the new covenant of my blood. 
and referring to the Passover stuff again, great continuity between the two covenants. And I, I really think that Galatians three and four just undercuts that whole argument. Yeah. Well, guys, if you want to hear if you want to hear that same those same passages touched on, check out last week. Eric touched on those exact uh, that exact uh, comment there. So, uh, uh, spoiler alert: it's fun. Uh, so go yep. check it out. <laughs> well, and that gets me to the next. That's like perfect into the the next question here, which is, um, you know, uh, sixteen eighty nine Federalists will contend that the new covenant presented in, in the New Testament is an entirely new, unique covenant, not a new administration of a prior covenant. Now, obviously, I I reject that. I think there's a singular covenant of grace, but Dr. Riddlebarger, could you expound for us a little bit about that idea? Why do we insist, why does the Westminster and, and the three forms speak of this idea of a, a singular covenant of grace, um, and particularly pro- pronounced in Westminsterian theology, that has these multiple administrations rather than seeing uh, the new covenant alone exclusively as the covenant of grace? Yeah, we've, we've touched on a lot of that already in the, in the prior uh, discussion we've had, which has been which has been really good. Um, I, I think you want to see, you know, the promise God made to Adam in the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis 3.15, promises reaffirmed in to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 22, and uh, Fred, 17 and 22 and on, the promise of a covenant to David in 2 Samuel 7, the promise Jeremiah makes of a new covenant, all those things are fulfilled in the one covenant that Jesus issues in his shed blood. Or else you have Abraham hanging out there with no connection to anything else. So I, I don't think that works. I think I think the fact that I'm a child of Abraham is really significant in answering that question. The second thing is, I think you have to be really careful here by seeing new as meaning different, of a different kind, as opposed to seeing new as something that's more recent for a fulfillment. I think the language of new covenant lends itself better to a fulfillment of something that exists as opposed to a do-over. And Moses done, we have a new covenant now, and that new covenant is is grounded in entirely different promises. I think that's really problematic. Um, and I, I, I use the illustration that I, I don't recall where I first heard, but it was really helpful to me. Uh, and then later on in life, I experienced it firsthand. I walked into the, the Christ Room Sanctuary at night and banged into a pew, and it hurt like crazy. I had a big honking bruise for days. I didn't see that pew because the lights were not. Turn the lights on, you know, exactly where the pews are. So <laughs> I, I see the New Testament doing that to the Old Testament. Mm. When the New Covenant comes, God turns the lights on on the old covenant, and we see things that were already there and already in place, but now make a whole lot more sense, and we know what to do with them because we can see them in light of Christ. So I think it's a problem to insist that new means different in kind, a do-over, start over again, as opposed to seeing it as more recent, something fulfilling. I think the very language of those two terms gets at that, and I'm on the side of continuity. Yeah, that, that was that was the struggle for me coming from a, a believer baptism position, and again, I've never been a 1689 guy. I was an evangelical Baptist, and that was the big issue for me was the continuity question. Yeah, no, I I, I would agree. There, we we as Baptists definitely believe in a covenant theology that you could say is is uh, less. Um, there's less continuity, but we don't mm-hmm. have a problem with the discontinuity. 
uh, as long as it's what we would consider a biblical discontinuity in that yeah. sense. And, and and neither do we, because we yeah. do believe that the sign changes. Yeah. Um, it's a dramatic thing to go from a knife and cutting ritual where blood is shed to a sign of water. So we believe in the continuity of what's uh, signified, but definitely a change in the signs. And so there is discontinuity as well. And that tension, as you say, is the is the key to this whole debate. Mm-hmm. Right. Agreed. Um, yeah. And, and I think uh, in, in some of the ways we might phrase it differently, we wouldn't necessarily say that the New covenant is new in kind, but rather just uh, of, not of the same substance uh, in the same way that uh, it, the same la- using the same language. Yeah, that's a distinction without a difference. I think. Sure, you could put it that way. <laughs> oh, snap. Yeah. Well, guys, if you want to hear the rest of that conversation, you have to join us on Patreon, where you can see us at four ninety nine a month, less than your grande Starbucks latte. Uh, you can hear extended conversations and and jump in. Um, but before we do that, yeah, go ahead. Justin, I just I yeah. do want to be snarky, but I'm, I'm laughing we welcome, because... We welcome snarkiness okay. here. <laughs> I'm laughing because we're so much closer on that matter than our Lutheran friends. Because yes. oh, yeah. you know, that's that's just a... The word says so. The word says so. The word says so. <laughs> right. Yeah. My body, my blood. My body, my blood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Keeping it, yeah. Well, as an aside, but... Well, actually, in the, in the overtime. Um, but just some recommended reading. These were things that I've kind of uh, in part or parcel read through that have been helpful to me um, or things that have been recommended to me. Uh, we have Infant Baptism in the Silence of the New Testament by Brian Hallstrom, um, Jesus Loves the Little Children by Danny Hyde, and then the big book uh, Word, Water, and Spirit by John Fesco from the OPC has been immensely helpful to me on this on this question. But Dr. Riddlebarger, are there other books that you would recommend uh, if our listeners are curious about this topic um, where... Where can they go, or what are the resources? Maybe lectures or, or podcasts or the things. I, I've got a recommended list on my blog under um, resources, and I like Guy Richards' new book on infant baptism. That's a new one, um, but it it's more it, it's a little more rigorous than Danny's book, and I like Danny's book. Um, the book is arranged, I think, with a, a question and answer format that is is really accessible for parents, and I, I think it's really important for parents in Reformed churches, in Reformed and Christian churches, to follow our forms and not baptize on the basis of tradition or um, superstition, and to really understand why you're presenting your child for baptism. I think that that's huge. So I have the recommended resources on the Riddle blog, and I'd also recommend Guy Richards' book, but Fesco's book is the best on this, clearly. Yeah. And one last question. Um in our email correspondence, you had told me about a new thing you're working on. So please tell our listeners uh, what's up in your world and how can they get more content from Dr. Kim Riddlebarger. I enjoy being on your podcast so much. I started my own. <laughs> well, amen. <laughs> um, now that I'm retired and can do things that, you know, the wee hours of the morning when I can't sleep or when I feel like it, I started a podcast called the blessed hope and it's really niche it's niche of niche. I'm doing detailed exegesis, uh, or rather exposition of books of the Bible. So I'm going through Galatians. I go through chapters four and five in a lot of detail and talk about this very thing we're talking about here, the relation between the old covenant and the new, vis-a-vis Paul's argument against the Judaizers, which is not the same as the discussion here among brothers over baptism. I want to be really clear about that. And uh, when I finish with that, if I'm still interested and I still enjoy doing it, I'll uh, then go to a podcast upload service and do the 
Apple and Spotify and all the rest of it, but I want to try it. So you can, you can find us on my blog, the Riddle blog at kimriddlebarger.com, all lowercase one word, kimriddlebarger.com. You can find a lot of stuff on there. It's free. And my Amelia lectures and my new podcast. So check it out. Yeah, yep. guys, go check it out. I started listening the uh, the other day at... Did you get uh, the anointing? Did what you get that? the anointing? Did you get the anointing? I did not get the anointing yet. Well, then you better listen again. You're missing out. Your, your right. spirit, your spirit man's not paying attention. <laughs> that was amazing, uh, guys. If you're looking to anoint your ears with solid Reformed <laughs> podcast content after you listen to the Blessed Hope, head over to the Society of Reformed Podcasters, a network of doctrinally sound podcasts from a Reformed perspective, including Assurance of Pardon, the Bobcast, Christ in Context, Distilling Theology. Fast God Stuff, Five Points Church Planting Podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude, Reform Brotherhood, Reform Pilgrims, Restless, Seeker <laughs> I got myself there, Sipping on Theology, Steady Anchor, and the Particular Baptist Podcast. Sign up, get all these programs at reformedpodcasts.com. Man, got the giggles tonight. Guys, That's amazing. If you want to anoint your eyeballs, <laughs> head on over to Instagram.com and uh, check out Distilling Theology at Distilling Theology. Get book recommendations, drink recommendations, etc. Also check us out on Facebook. Uh, just search for Distilling Theology. You'll find a page to like and a group to join. Join us on our group. Uh, We've got to be close to 700 people now. Uh, hang oh, out with us. Good. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we have some great sage discussions. Um, I mean, we, we have... Very seldom had to do much moderating there. Only um, about Fig Newtons. That's really yeah, the only Fig thing. Fig Newtons and, and, yeah, it's, you know, controversial stuff. So uh, <laughs> head on over there, join us, join the discussion. You can interact right with me and Blake and anybody else who's in there. It's a good time. It's a good time. Um, and, guys, if you want to actually join our family, our Distilling Theology family, if you want to be adopted into the family of Distilling Theology, <laughs> head on over to patreon.com slash Distilling Theology. We will fully submerge you for four ninety nine a month. Uh, you, you know, like Blake said, uh, it's cheap, and you get all this. You get all this good stuff. You get all this video content. You know, you get all the the uh, early releases. You get to see Blake's long hair, my beard, uh, Doctor Kim's uh, bald head. It's wonderful. You want to be here for that? Trust me. Um, and then for fourteen ninety nine a month, you want some merch? You'll get some exclusive merch. And guys, if you join us on Patreon, you will get. Uh, 10% off anything in the Distilling Theology store, shopdistillingtheology.com and you can can fully cover yourself with a nice Distilling Theology blanket because it's great, it's wonderful (laughs) check us out Uh, oh boy or just have a small pour of whiskey Um, but whatever you do whether you eat or drink do all to the glory of God Sully Deo Gloria 